1: And bad decisions um so i am happy that i've gotten to do my second interview uh with this podcast which is, which is great uh anyone who's never started a podcast being able to reach out and start getting guests who then can say hey i was on with this guy that guy the other guy you know and it really helps build who you're able to reach out to uh, i've already gotten to speak with jennings of the blaze and this week i was able to have a Brief conversation with one Andrew Heaton. Uh, Heaton is a guy that when I first started listening to podcasts, it was because he was on the Blaze, at, with his podcast. Something's off with Andrew Heaton. I'd never really seen anything from him. I'd never listened to any of his stuff, read any of his writings with reason, or any of his YouTube videos that are, you know, political comedy. But I absolutely, you know. Grew a deep respect for him, even though we might not agree on a lot of things. But that's cool, and I was happy to get a chance to sit down on Zoom and talk with him. He was kind of, kind of busy. Had you know, he had just finished an interview with uh, Libertarian Party presidential candidate uh, Joe Jorgensen. So, you know, he was kind of shoehorning me in when he could, and I'm very, very grateful for the time that he was able to give me. So without further ado, here is my interview with Mr. Andrew Heaton. All right, so I am pleased to have as a guest on my show, Mr. Andrew Heaton. Uh, you may know him from Reason. He was a writer for Fox Business. He worked in Congress as a staffer. You may me- maybe remember him from The Blaze and something's off Andrew Heaton. Andrew, welcome to Land of Bourbon and Bad Decisions.
0: Thank you, Tyler. Delightful to be here. I'm very pleased to come on your show.
1: Yeah, um, so one of the big things that I've been trying to wrap my head around here the last few weeks is how insane everyone is getting around the election is there so much and i almost said antipathy that's definitely not the right word uh antagonization going on from left and right you know especially now that you know the whole hunter biden thing has kicked off in the last week i mean What's your opinion on what you're seeing, especially being out in the Bay Area right now?
0: I I think that elections always hit a boiling point towards the end. Um, People are inherently tribalistic, and that that means that we like being on a team. Part of that equation is not just promoting our team, but hating another team, Uh, which is why, you know, generally people um, strike up alliances when, when there's some sort of outsider. An outside threat is always very helpful in terms of uh, galvanizing otherwise weak social bonds. So uh, tribalism is is a, a predominant element to you know a- everyday life, but in particular political elections. And I, I think w- whenever you see um, stress being ramped up or fear being ramped up, people are going to seek comfort in a group identity and group solidarity. And then on the flip side, um, when they perceive that their group is being eclipsed or is under threat, that's likewise gonna ramp up that tribalism feeling. And so I think the further we get towards the election day, the less and less uh the vote becomes a kind of you know engineering element of, well, I favor these policies and this candidate represents those views best, or alternately, uh, this is a a, a you know, a civic element that I'm doing to try and affect exchange. And it more and more becomes a kind of emblem of your tribe that you are. Uh, putting out there, I want to commune with the Democratic Party or I want to commune with the Republican Party. And as that becomes more and more heightened, people get sucked into yay, my team, boo your team on a very emotional level and uh, and and kind of disengage from from just interacting with folks on a policy level. And so I think that that'll reach a fever pitch probably next week. That'll be the height of it. I, I would have I would advise people to just really probably avoid talking to anybody that you know is dead set on a candidate you disagree with uh, in the intervening week and a half, because I think it'll be pretty useless. And, uh, and then hopefully when, when a president is inaugurated, things will drop down to like quarter impulse power.
1: Right. And I'm kind of hoping the same thing because, you know, with all the, the BLM marches and counter protests and everything else going on, and you see how much violence has broken out. And it's scary to think that, there's that kind of political violence in the United States. That's usually something you see in third world countries whenever uh, the social the social norms started to fall apart around politics.
0: Yeah, it's, you know, contrasting this election with, say, like 2012, uh, 2012. I was uh, I, I sat I was in New York in 2012 and I got invited to some uh, Mitt Romney watch party. And so I I went to that. And um, the election was over pretty quick, basically, when they called Florida. So it was, you know, we were only there like an hour. I only had time for, you know, a glass of wine. But uh, but that being said, though, the the atmosphere at the party and outside was either like, yay, Obama won or alternately. Well, darn, better next, uh, better luck next time. Like it was just it was either like elation or like, you know, just kind of general sadness. But there was really no threat of violence at all that i or anybody else really anticipated at that time and uh even 2016 when 2016 happened i was in times square uh during that election and so i could hear crowds outside of fox chanting lock her up and <laughs> uh, i ended up going home around 2 a.m because i was covering it at the time and so i i could hear people screaming at each other in the streets but even then it was vocal anger There there was no like that there wasn't anybody like walking around with you know like a billy club or anything like that. And uh, this time around, I feel like that threat of violence is certainly heightened uh, beyond what we've previously experienced. I think that there's a very good chance that we'll have riots uh, a la the George Floyd protests or higher. Um, and I think that they're all but guaranteed at this point for a couple of reasons. Uh, I don't see either side um, graciously conceding. And what I mean by that is, I think that if Trump loses. Uh, Trump supporters will very likely think that the election was stolen and rigged, and if Biden loses, Biden supporters will very likely think that the election was stolen and rigged. And so rather than having that Romney defeat of 2012 of, uh, darn, our guy lost, I wish he'd won, I, I think there's going to be vast swaths of the American electorate, Republican or Democrat, who feel like the election outcome is illegitimate and that uh, they they have been iced out of the political process. And I think that's doubly likely because um we're going to see so much more voting by mail this election than we usually do. Voting by mail is I think actually fairly secure. It's actually pretty difficult to try and counterfeit ballots and that kind of thing. So I'm not worried about them getting uh uh you know getting rigged, but they are very error prone. Uh, in 2016, the amount of mail-in ballots that was thrown out due to error was greater than the gap between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump in the popular election. I think she lost, or she she won the popular vote by two million votes or so. Meanwhile, the amount of uh, mail-in ballots that were thrown out was about six million, and that's during a regular year, uh, not a pandemic year. This time around, uh, I mean, I've seen estimates for mail-in ballots as high as seventeen times that of a regular year. And you you think about there's all that error. Uh, the uh, the states themselves are not used to dealing with. Uh, That many mail in ballots, and the voters specifically are not used to putting mail in ballots together. And so, I think there's a very good chance that in crucial swing states like uh, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Florida, you're going to see situations where Biden probably won the actual vote tally. Like, if everybody just held up their hand, he would be the winner. Uh, But because uh, Democrats disproportionately plan to vote by mail in ballot, and Republicans disproportionately plan to vote uh, in person the presumably uh, more of the the votes that are thrown out will be Biden's because those will be mail-in ballots. So let's say if like a fifth of the ballots are thrown out, which I think is a realistic possibility, then in a really narrow election where, where you know, it's maybe like 10,000 votes that separate the difference, it, it could easily kick it from uh, Biden to Trump based on technicalities and, and voter error, in which case the, the Democrats would understandably feel like they were robbed uh, but at the same time, if I were a judge and uh and I were I was looking at it going, look, I'm sorry, like this person used incorrect postage or whatever, that is the law, uh, then I disqualify this ballot. So I, I think situations like that are apt to be rife. And as a result of that, you'll you'll see a lot of protests and probably riots.
1: Right. And I think one of the things that really doesn't help the situation, Donald Trump won't come out and say, if I lose it will be, it'll be over. Joe Biden's team is not saying if we don't win on election night, it's over. They're they're both, uh, you have uh, surrogates like Hillary Clinton saying, don't concede, fight, 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 fight. And it's both sides that are just adding fuel to that fire. I mean, 2012, that was eight years ago. I think I was stationed at Fort Knox. I just did a you know, mail in absentee ballot call a day didn't really, yeah, it was Mitt Romney, he ain't going to win, but I'll vote for him anyways. But, and then 2016, I spent all, the entire primary season just going, why is everybody just all up on Donald Trump like he is the Cheeto Jesus? And even being deployed to Afghanistan 2016. I didn't even fill out an absentee ballot and send in. I'm just like, "Mm, nope, don't like Trump. You know, I was a Ted Cruz kind of guy. So didn't even even vote in 2016. And then, you know, when you're a a leader in the Army and you have junior soldiers, hey, Sergeant Morgan, who are you voting for in the election? Well, number one, as your NCO, I can't tell you who I'm voting for because that would be, you know, unethical. Number two, I'm not voting for any of them because they're both a bunch of asshats but so, and then I'm a lot more invested in the election this time, because I have seen a lot of the stupid crap that Donald Trump has done. I've also seen a lot of the stuff that I think foreign policy wise, Donald Trump has done. That's really good. Some of the stuff that, okay, kind of give us a black guy on the net on the foreign stage, Donnie, come on, settle down. But as well as times it's like, I really have looking at who's, there to vote for, I would have. I'm going to have to throw my hat in with Donald Trump on this one, just because, especially with the possibility of bringing home troops from Afghanistan by Christmas. Please, for love of God, <laughs> we've been there for 19 years. Bring us home.
0: So, so, for you, the tipping point is foreign policy, and specifically uh pulling troops out of foreign commitments.
1: Um, that and the he says the greatest tax cut of all time okay, it was a mediocre tax cut. It helped It helped my take-home pay at the end of the week. Not a significant amount, but, you know, it's my money. I want to keep my money. You know, and there's a lot of stuff that he's done. And one of the big things I was worried about him when he became president was, you know, he's a very kind of authoritarian figure when it comes to Trump enterprises. I was worried that if there's a national emergency, he was going to, you know, jump in and really try to seize control. But then with all the COVID stuff that happened, he went full Federalist and no, 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 no. I'm not going to do a national lockdown. Let governors do that. And it's just like, huh. I was pleasantly surprised, although there's a whole number of different backlashes and stuff from from all of that. But as far as like the non interventionist not wanting to get us into any more stuff overseas, I said I've got my combat infantryman badge. I'm good. I don't wish that hell on, you know, other people. So, I mean, the less that we have to be overseas doing things, the better off I think we are.
0: Well, I I certainly agree with you there. I mean, I'm a non-interventionist as well. I would love to, uh, I, I would love to basically just pull out of the Middle East. I don't think we should be allied with Saudi Arabia uh, I, I think, uh, you know, it, it's a pretty expensive price tag we're paying, playing broker for the Middle East. There's a variety of, you know, we, you know, we spend about uh, half of the global defense budget. I mean, if you take every other country in the world, it, it, it basically adds up to what we pay. And uh, there, there is some matter of punching power there because a lot of that is going to Veterans Administration, things like that. But even then, if you look at like Russia, Russia spends, I think, about an eighth of what we spend. No one's worried about Russia getting invaded. are not going to get invaded. Like, we're not going to get invaded if we cut our military budget by a significant amount. We're not going to get invaded if we pull out a lot of these other countries. Um, so I'm with you on that. I am, I am curious, not having been in, in the armed forces myself, never having been deployed. I mean, the, the most I've ever done is done stand-up comedy in, like, <laughs> Germany and Southeast Asia. So I've never done that. Um, what, like, I, I, from, from my vantage point, I'm looking at um, the presidency, and, and I have to kind of grade it on a curve where very rarely do you have a president that actually wants to pull back from foreign commitments. Generally, it's either maintain the status quo, which is, I think, pretty much what Trump has done, or expand it like George W. Bush did or like Obama did in, in Libya. Uh, what are the, the positive policy developments that you saw on a foreign policy level in terms of Trump?
1: Um, well, like one of the big ones is one of our, you know, like you said, we spend half the world's budget on defense how much of our national defense budget went to NATO when you have other countries, you know, the other, what, 21 countries in NATO who are pledged to give X percent of GDP, but they weren't that that's yeah. a, that's a big one right there. Getting some of these, some of the bigger countries in NATO to start, you know, footing their share of the bill. And that even though we're still spending the same amount of money defense wise, it can be redirected into better things better equipment for you know getting soldiers into and out of battle safely better equipment for personal safety while deployed and stuff like that better technology to keep to make us less needing of boots on the ground so that that's one of those things and also the work he's started doing between Israel uh is it Qatar and or UAE and Bahrain yes Israel has not been in any you know, hot standoffs with either of those two countries, but you have those two signing on to have diplomatic relations with Israel. You have Saudi Arabia, as much as I'm not a fan of the Sauds. They're starting to come, come around. Egypt's starting to come around on Israel. I think Donald Trump has been good for those, but you know, and
0: well, interesting points. I don't know as much about the the Middle East brokering. I haven't really followed that story very closely. Um, I I would love to pull out of Afghanistan. I think, like as you say, we've been there. I mean, it, like the war could vote at this point if it were if it were a citizen. Uh, and uh, and with NATO too. Like I'm kind of torn on NATO because I I think that something that was very clever of George H. W. Bush that he's not really given credit for was. When the Soviet Union imploded, he held NATO together because he saw value in maintaining a civilizational bloc with Western Europe. Mm -hmm. Western Europe had previously been united in opposition to the Soviet Union. And when it collapsed, he went, no, I I think that I want to keep these countries all together in an alliance, which I think has been beneficial. Like, it's been good that Germany and and the UK specifically, and to a lesser extent, France, (laughs) have, have wanted to... More or less, be on the same page as us, and I think that that's been a source of stability and peace. So I like that. I wouldn't get rid of NATO. By that same token, though, as an American, I I can look at the math and go, yeah, like part of the reason that the European uh, European states have such beautiful social safety nets uh, is they're not spending, paying for their defense. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, because it you look at like um, if you look at uh, per capita spending in America, it's pretty much the same as per capita spending in the UK and France. I don't remember the exact figures, but let's say theoretically that uh, France spends $21,000 per citizen. Uh, The U.K. spends $20,000 per citizen. America spends like $19,800 per – like it's really – we're in the same ballpark. It's not like we spend less than the French or British governments per capita. We're we're right up there. It's just that much of that is either being – thrown away through sheer government idiocy mm-hmm. or alternately it's being spent on very big military commitments that they don't have because they know we've got their back and if you were to pull out or, or all i mean what i would do is go we're in a defensive alliance with you if you get attacked we'll absolutely come to your aid but we're also not going to pay for your military like we're like we'll we'll come but it might take us a week uh and if that were the case then you'd, you'd have to go oh nuts we need to increase taxes by 20 percent to buy our own tanks or alternately you know we need to not have everybody get uh, all of the massive social spending that we're able to do because uncle Sam is basically footing the bill.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And as it, as a conservative person who tends to lean libertarian, I would love to see us start to pull back from that. I, I do understand the point of having forward bases as far as a, you know, national defense strategy, because you know, Having been to Afghanistan, if there's bad guys in the middle of nowhere, you don't want to have, you know, troops moving out from Bagram or uh, Kandahar to go out in the middle of nowhere to catch, you know, whoever's bringing whatever bombs into the country. So, I mean, you know, same thing, you know, if you're concerned about a foreign th- a foreign power, it's a threat, you know, let's just say Putin somehow amasses an army that wants to march over Europe. Again, you know, yeah that that week delay time to, of getting yeah getting equipment you know moved to Europe into that theater, you know, it it slows down the process of you know forming a defense. But you know, no that
0: no that makes a lot of sense, and I think that that's a very good critique of what I just described of like maintain NATO but but pull back our financial commitments to NATO. Uh, what what I've heard is if you do that, you're basically leaving Western Europe defenseless. And uh, as a result, uh, they, they'd have to do it. So would, would the idea be then, if, if if we if we did pull back on NATO funding, that um, it would just effectively not exist anymore because they would pursue their own defense agendas, or or would you rather maintain that we ought to continue funding those uh, those bulwarks against Russia?
1: Well, I mean, you have the European Union. If if they can all get together with their you know have make a multinational centralized economy like you know you can do a multinational centralized defense where all the countries are you know putting up x amount and then maybe you don't need the united states with you know forces in germany poland uh vicenza italy where else that we are in europe or maybe maybe not even just pull everyone out but even just minimize what you have there
0: well that you know that might be a way to uh, to approach it i mean it might be that in the 21st century we should rather than viewing nato as a as the supreme alliance uh move towards a uh, america plus european union and britain alliance or something like that or i guess it'd be like the commonwealth plus europe plus america tripartite alliance or something like that uh but but either way kind of let them do their own thing and and pull back a little bit um yeah, they certainly have the, the economic capacity to pull it off. The way the European Union is currently organized is they have uh, battle groups where they have three countries per battle group. So basically, like France, I don't know, Germany, and Romania will all lend uh, an army uh, or s- some unit of military defense. The three of them will comprise this battle group, and that will be deployed someplace. Um, so it, it would be like if, in the United States, if the way we handle our military – is like if Kansas and Vermont and California combined some amount of their local militias to form an army and every other state did that in some capacity and then they sort of put them around the board strategically to protect Europe as opposed to protect the states themselves which are where the bulk of the military lies but it might be that it's a better idea for them to uh accelerate that and and rather than you know their current situation which is very nation state based with a little bit of uh, borrowed troops at the at the European level move towards more of a federal army i don't know
1: yeah i mean it's just one of those things that looking forward i, I i've seen from the from a military standpoint i've seen lots of good happen with donald trump i saw yeah, some good happen with barack obama towards the military i think the greatest thing from the barack obama administration honestly is going to make some of my listeners cringe but in 2011 sitting in afghanistan getting told all right we are officially repealing. Don't ask, don't tell. And it's like, really? You're getting rid of the Bill Clinton era. Oh, we found out you're gay. Get out of my army. Yeah. I think that was like one of the yeah, bigger no, ones. I, I
0: agree. That was a, I mean, I, I don't, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm very, very much a hedonist, whatever you want to do, as long as you're not hurting anybody, go for it and do it as much as you can until you get sore. And uh, if, if somebody can defend me, Weak comedian living in the United States. I really don't care if they're gay or not. Uh, I, you know, like as long as as long as you're all wearing the same camouflage, um, it, it makes no difference to me. And I, I think that was a positive development in the Obama administration. And I think that uh, I, I think the American people are a lot more tolerant than we were given credit for. I've never been in armed combat. My guess is Tyler, based on our very mm-hmm. brief interactions, that you would you would feel equally loyal to a gay member of your uh, of your your squad or or whatever whatever unit mm-hmm. you were in. Your unit? How about that? Yeah. I would imagine, that, like you would feel <laughs> equally loyal to them as you would to a straight person. I, I, when I oh, yeah, it's... the military veterans, they talk about how intense that bond is with your fellow soldier, and I would imagine that that would always uh, jump above any type of like, uh, or or in general, would jump above any type of homophobia or anything. Oh yeah, so it, I, it, I, it's I it's that, ridiculous that uh, gays were made, mm-hmm. you know, full full army mm-hmm. members.
1: Yeah, and you know, it was one of the dumbest things, in my opinion, you yep. know. I got it for however many years. It was viewed as a mental health issue, also viewed as a uh, as a potential security issue. But you know, we've kind of grown past that. And for it to take so long to go, okay, this is dumb. We let's not have this policy anymore. Because I remember back when I was but a yeah, week. Was,
0: I think it was the same with <clears throat> with integrating the army in, in World War II there were there were people that were opposed to integrating the army. They were like, you know, previously prior to World War II, most of the units were either black or white. They were not mixed race and there were concerns at the time of like, oh, if you start putting black people with white people, it'll throw off the military and it's like, no, it turns out like uh, like being No, it just Woodrow
1: Wilson was a racist dick. That's all.
0: Also <laughs> true.
1: He very much was. Woodrow Wilson and, was I, I give Woodrow Wilson full blame for segregating the entire federal government workforce to include the military.
0: Yeah. And he also um, did a lot to build the regulatory state in order to try and avoid black people getting a foot in the elected state uh, because he went, Oh, if we, if we build up this technocratic regulatory device, we can stick that with good Ivy league white people, which will be insulated from all these incoming black people that can vote now. Uh, Yeah. Wilson had all sorts of horrible things. Oh yeah. uh, Racism was, hot billing, i think yeah well, I, uh, tyler i very much enjoyed talking to you and oh yeah have great conversation I've got a bunch of interviews i got to do today so i've got a jet but
1: oh yeah take it easy i'm glad program.
0: thank you for your service
1: yeah thanks for coming on uh hopefully we can you know do this again one day for something more than just inane ramblings about what's going on in the world <laughs> something more substantive all right Sounds thanks good. for coming I on enjoyed eating. it yep bye